Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Ig Publishing, publisher of a new novel in stories called Lord, the One You Love is Sick by Casey Thornton. Lord, the one you love is sick, is a gorgeously written and heartrending work of fiction from an important new voice in the literature of the American South. Publishers Weekly raves, quote, these stories collectively coalesce into a resonant, emotionally searing nexus of hard truths, buried secrets, and emotional pain that readers won't soon forget. Lord, the one you love is sick by Casey Thornton. Available now from Ig Publishing. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I have Andrew Weatherhead on the program today. He has a, a new uh, book out from Publishing Genius Press. It is called $50,000. Andrew Weatherhead, one of our uh, finest young poets. I'm a fan of his work, and I'm glad to have gotten the chance to talk with him. That conversation is coming up. I do want to acknowledge here uh, briefly the results of the election. Election 2020, Joe Biden prevailed over Donald Trump. Thank God. And it is turning out to be an election that is really not all that close, historically speaking. I know that the counts have been slow due to a lot of mail-in ballots and to state election procedures. But it looks like when all is said and done, Biden will have won by a significant popular vote margin between, I think, six and seven, like five and seven million votes, depending on how it all shakes out. And he will have won in excess of 300 electoral votes, it looks like. So by comparison, the elections in 2000, 2004, 1976, and 1960, in relatively recent times, were all much closer elections. And I can't wait until Trump is out of office. I think... Over the past week, with his refusal to accept the results and to hide in, in the White House in his bunker eating fast food and spitting out tweets and firing people at the Pentagon 
and, you know, sending out his lackeys to carry water for him and to call into question the processes and the outcome of the election is exactly what you would expect from a deeply amoral sociopath, nightmare human like Donald Trump. And I can only hope that whatever sloppy coup d'etat he is fantasizing about right now and trying to execute in some way, I can only hope that it fails and fails miserably like he has failed as a human being. And that on January 20th, 2021, Joe Biden will be sworn in, Kamala Harris will be sworn in, and Donald Trump will begin the process of being vanquished into the dustbin of history. Certainly our worst president ever, which is really saying something. And I was having a conversation yesterday with my uncle. He's a Catholic priest in the Deep South and a wonderful guy. I often joke that if he had been like my pastor when I was growing up going to Catholic church, I might never have become so disenchanted. He's just well-read, thoughtful, wise, decent in every way. I've never seen him have a bad moment. I mean, I haven't spent endless time around him. I'm not trying to make him a saint, but he's a very good human being. And he was talking to me, and I think at first blush you might think Catholic priest deep south this is a guy who would be on board with trump but he volunteered to me that he voted with biden and he said he made a list on a piece of paper and for context my uncle is like i want to say he's in his early 80s he's the eldest of nine children and he said to me i was making a list of what i was voting for as opposed to you know what i was voting against what what was i voting for he said, and he told me, I, I think I got it right. He said, sanity, empathy, honesty, decency, and democracy. How do you argue with that? So the forces of sanity, empathy, honesty, decency, and democracy one out. And wherever you fall on the political left, like maybe you're like me. I'm pretty progressive. Biden was not my choice. I am still thrilled and celebrating his victory. And I hope you are too. And if for some reason Trump was your guy, all I can say is that I hope you'll reflect on that in the weeks and months and years to come. Process information, honestly. I think if you do that, you're going to come to realize that that was a vote made in error. Not because of some policy difference that you might have, but because Trump is an autocratic leader who is tr actively trying, even as we speak, to subvert and destroy American democracy. Because it doesn't square with his own personal aims and objectives. This election wasn't about politics, really. It was about autocracy versus democracy. 
and democracy won. Thank God. And now we have to suffer the final indignity of living through this lame duck for another 70 days, which, you know, it's going to be a long 70 days, right? But that's the system that we have in place. And uh, I'm sure Trump is going to try everything he can to burn it down on his way out or to hang on to power if he can. And we cannot let him. And Democrats and people of good conscience must be unbending. I know I certainly will be. So anyway, that's my two cents. And uh, let's get on with the program. My guest today is Andrew Weatherhead. His new book is called $50,000. It's available from Publishing Genius. Here he is, folks. This is Andrew Weatherhead. Like, I wanted to do a book that was, like, these single lines evenly spaced with, like, a lot of white space in between them. I think they're, like, triple spaced. And if, the, like, the Microsoft Word version, they're triple spaced. And I had thought about how often I would read poetry and just, you know, I, I would read poems, individual poems, and I would see, I, I would just get drawn into like one line from the poem or like I would only remember a line or it would, the whole poem seemed to exist around a certain line. And so I thought like, what if there was a book of poetry that was just the good lines or like without any of the supporting infrastructure of a poem around it like could you just get to the core of poetry by like the good lines but that it that didn't work out it was a mess i tried that years ago and put it on the back shelf and realized you kind of need these infrastructure lines that get you from from one good line to the next good line or like that kind of set a scene or, or pace things out in a certain way and so the book really was not written linearly at all it was sort of collaged from these different attempts to try this over several years and then along the way i you know i realized i would have these quotes or these random facts like these medical codes that that kind of cracked me up and so i i realized they could all fit into this one thing and that there was enough there to sort of flesh out an entire concept that i might have had originally but didn't know how to do it. Does that, any of that make sense? Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I mean, one of my, uh, <clears throat> big, um, one of my big, uh, questions was about the white space and the, you know, the decision to do that. Um, I, I like this idea of only including the best lines because that's how it reads. Like every line in this book feels memorable to me. Um, many of them are funny. Um, and I, and, and I like this idea of, doing it as a collage, you know, kind of making attempts that don't necessarily work out over a, a long period of time and having this material and then assembling, I guess, uh, what we see on the page yeah. in your book, you know, eventually kind of seems like, you know, like this happens, I think, with every book, but maybe more so with a book like this and with collage is that uh, you know, you get to a point where eventually the book is telling you what it is rather than you starting with some grand idea and then imposing, you know, your will on the page. Am I? Yeah, totally. And um, oh, what was so 
Yeah, like it, it really had a life of its own, and I, I guess I'm kind of heartened to hear that that it came off as if it were some sort of like notes taken in a stream of consciousness manner, because to me it felt exactly the opposite of like I had this one line that I liked from three years ago that I'm trying to make work, and like it didn't work in this one way, and I made it into another way. Um, and it, it really did have a life of its own. And it, it was, I kind of had to meet it on its terms more than impose this vision I had originally, even though that's what got me started. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Are all the quotes in the book attributed? Like I know mo a lot of them oh. when they're direct quotes in quotes, you know you no, know who the speaker not. is. But are there are there lines in the in the in the book that are lifted but not attributed? Yes, there definitely are, um, for different reasons. Some because I just didn't want to give the person credit. <laughs> uh, others because I just I didn't know what I was doing initially and like had written a line down and then I forgot who said it. Like there's definitely a Don DeLillo line in there, I'm sure, but I, I don't remember which one it is anymore. Uh, like it, it, it all got lost in the, the sauce, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious too about like just your day to day. Are you somebody who like, if you're at work or you're, um, out in the city or whatever it is and you hear something, uh, somebody says, and it strikes you, you, you're keeping like a notes file in your phone. Cause that, that's the other thing. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. You feel like a very careful observer of people and things. And I guess that's sort of the MO for writers, but I, I just, I very, I felt that very strongly in this book, just that you're a person who's got a very keen eye. And I'm curious to know, um, you know, how you remember all these great lines, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I def definitely have like all sorts of notes and I, I have, I keep like a notebook on me at, at most times. Um, but the phone is nice because it looks like you're typing a text message, but you're really, you know, you might be transcribing what someone is saying on the subway or whatever when we used to ride those. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy being out and about and, and observing. So let me ask you about, because uh, you live in Brooklyn uh, and we're in, you know, we're recording this on November 5th, 2020. Feels worth time stamping. Uh, yeah, three, we're, it's 350 in case anything big is happening. 
Okay, yeah, three fifty in the afternoon, twelve fifty in uh, Los Angeles, and oh yeah, right. Time. You know, we have uh, a new spike in COVID cases, so there's a resurgence of COVID, and like more than a thousand people dying a day. We're in the throes of this very like volatile and tense election, which I think is going to be resolved tonight. Uh, I think it's going to be called once Pennsylvania comes in, but you know. Let's wait and see. I, I don't. I don't believe anything until it happens anymore. But yeah, I, I guess right. I'm just curious. Like without spending too much time here, um, you know, nitpicking it, it feels worth like acknowledging. And like I'm wondering how this week has gone for you. How many notes have you been taking? <laughs> like, what's your impression? And then also, you know, how has life been for you this year? It's been such a strange year with the pandemic and the election and you know all the rest. So just can you talk a little bit about how you've yeah, been doing? Yeah, sure. Um, doing okay. Uh, <laughs> hanging in there. I, I guess I'm not as rosy that things will be resolved quickly. I think it, it, it seems like we could be in a political morass for a while. And that is anxiety inducing. Um, but there's nothing I can do about that right now. So I'm trying to control what I can and, not check my phone too much. Um, fortunately still employed. So I have something to keep my days busy. Um, and I'm trying to like, I'm trying to read and write as much as I can just to take my mind off stuff, but it's not, I don't have a clear, project I'm working on, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not trying to force anything. And I feel very fortunate that, um, this book came out when it did and I didn't have to release it during a pandemic and that I didn't have to address the pandemic. And like, I, I wasn't halfway through a draft of something and now all of a sudden our world changes again. Um, so, but on the, the pandemic side of things, it's, it's been okay for us again, very fortunate that, um, my wife and I, we got married in, uh, July, right. July, we did a small pandemic wedding. Um, congratulations. Been, thank you. Uh, but you know, it's, it's stressful. Um, we don't really, we've been pretty cautious. We're not going out in the city. We fortunately we have this backyard space that I'm sitting in now so we can have some, um, a little bit of peace without having to mask up, um, outdoors. I don't know. How are you doing? I, I think this is, you know, gotta be a two way conversation. Like, I don't want to just answer and then not, <laughs> not ask you how you're doing too. You're in Los Angeles. How's it been? Uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of the same same things. We're very cautious. I, my son has some disabilities, so we have mm -hmm. we have been advised by our doctors to be extra careful. Like kids with his dis gotcha. <clears throat> his disabilities, you know, you don't want them to get it. So, you know, I was thinking this morning. I was like, I really haven't left my house except to go exercise since March. Um, I haven't been inside of a store. I haven't been in a restaurant. Or actually, I've been in one bookstore. And they only had me. I was the only customer in there. But even then, I was, like, sort of freaked out. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I put that in quotes. I, I don't, I'm not that worried when I'm wearing a mask. Um, I think a mask does quite a lot uh, to protect you. But if you're indoors, you know, you're obviously in a, in a more difficult environment. And then 
uh, psychologically, I think doing fairly well considering. Uh, I think that maybe because we're in it, and when I say in it, I mean the pandemic and I mean quarantine or some semblance of quarantine, and I mean the election and the political environment that we're in, which is so crazy. I don't know because we are so immersed in it if I really have a clear sense of the effects. It might be something that only comes into full focus after the fact. Yeah. Have you been able to to do any reading or writing um, either this week or in the pandemic? It's been kind of a up and down for me. Strangely, yes. Uh, part of it is that my day job life has permitted me because it's a little bit wacky and in limbo and that's been stressful. Um, and so I think like I've channeled, like I finished a book this year, I'm writing a second one and I'm, I've gotten a lot, like I've gotten like a crazy amount of writing done for me. Nice. Um, and I don't know why, cause like, you know, and I don't mean to toot my own horn cause this isn't how it usually is for me. I'm notoriously slow. Um, but I joke that like pan- the pandemic for whatever reason has been good. I think part of it is that it, it just limited my options and, mm-hmm. um, I just need to f- channel my energy productively. <clears throat> and so that's what I've been doing. Uh, reading wise, I was doing really well for a while, but then I started this blog project, uh, in September. I've been, I've been basically live blogging my life all throughout the election season. Um, it's kind of like my personal life and in the election and the news and the speed of the news and the crazy, you know, velocity of the information that I'm trying to digest. And because I'm kind of always at my computer writing, my ability to read has been dramatically reduced and I miss it. Yeah. I, I had a really tough time early on in March, April, and I, maybe even most of the summer reading much because it just seemed like nothing was relevant. It was like this, this, this has no bearing on what I'm experiencing right now. Um, and it wasn't until uh, maybe the past two months. I, so I, I'd set a goal to read a hundred books this year. And now I'm realizing that I lost a lot of time Um not reading. (laughs) And so I'm like furiously trying to catch up and like reading short books and a lot more poetry. I guess I, I had tried to read some longer nonfiction and longer fiction that was a bit denser and really slowed me down. But this is, has sort of like provoked me back into a regular reading habit, which I'm, I'm happy for. Yeah, I know. It's like, there's nothing better uh, than to have a book that you can lose yourself in, especially when, you know, the day to day of our existence is so tedious and stressful. And, um, I don't think there's any shame if you're going for a hundred books in a year, you know, you're going to have to have some poetry in there to sort of pace things out. (laughs) Right. Totally. And it's, it's like, isn't that what I'm like, aren't I a poet or something? Like, shouldn't I be reading poetry anyways? But I, I kind of wasn't for the first half of the year, for whatever reason, it just, it, I, I guess I was pessimistic on it and had just come out of spending so much time on this book that I published that I, I kind of needed a break, but I'm happy that it's like come back. Um, so that's nice. 
Yeah, I really love your work. Uh, I first came to be aware of it, I think, on the nervous breakdown. Uh, and forgive me for having like a senior moment, but I'm thinking of the the uh, basketball poem. What's the? Oh yeah, the um that NBA league pass. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was on hold for four hours with NBA league pass, and then I just started. I started to like write down what was happening. Yes, um, I love that. Then, I love that poem. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you like it. Well, I, I guess like, uh, a question I have about that one that you really just did that. You started recording thoughts as it was happening because that poem, when I read it c contrasted with, uh, 50,000 is it felt like, a, like it came out in like, like a straight shot. You know what I'm saying? That's the way it reads to me. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I definitely edited it, uh, significantly, but I certainly was like, there was a whole, uh, legal pad full of like different thoughts and ideas that, that might've made it into the final one, but it's not like I just published exactly what I wrote, of course. Um, but it did, it, it, it was a funny thing. And I, I think like that's ideally like that kind of hit a sweet spot where I, I just love when works come out within like they're like a lived thing. They come out in a time like, um, like I know Blake Butler would like write a book in, in like two weeks or something. And I just, I always love that when you like set out, you have a time constraint or something and you just like, that's just what it is. So I, I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. It has like, it has the, the feeling of like lived experience in it. Like it real, like lived psychological experience, especially. And there's yeah, something yeah. so, there's something so great and kind of wry and uh, hilarious about, and, and just like, there, there's something humiliating about being on hold, right? You just like, it's the most inhumane experience to be dealing with customer service. And I don't know. Right. Uh, it resonated but, with and, me. Well, and the worst part was that I, I like, so it hit four hours and then it, the call just dropped. Like that's the limit. Like I, I hit the limit of the customer service wait time and then if you go on to the nba league pass like website they have like a chat bot and it helped me immediately i was like i'm locked out can you help and they're like yes here's the password reset i was like <laughs> oh my god are you kidding me like uh, but then i was like okay i've got the like that's the like i i know this was meant to be or something i was like made to endure this for a reason yeah you got a great poem out of it yeah so uh, I want to talk to you about basketball because clearly you're a basketball fan that comes through in your work. And, uh, are you a basketball player? Did you play as a kid? Uh, I played a ton as a kid. I was not, I never grew though. I'm only like five ten, So I quit. I, I played like every travel team you could up until high school when people hit their growth spurt and I was just uh, athletically couldn't cut it. Um, and then, but then in college, I played pickup like almost every day. I like got, so I like didn't play at all in high school. And then in college, I realized like they, you just have a gym access. Like this is a, I, I realized there was a gym and you could just go play for fun. And I just got completely obsessed again with playing it, but always liked watching it. You pretty good? Um, I mean, so I haven't played since college really regularly. Um, I'd say I have my moments like the, the, I went to NYU. So it was a division three athletic college and, uh, the 
some of the guys from the basketball team would play in these pickup games. And I'm like, I could, I could hold my own. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, run the gym, but, but, uh, I'm not out of place either. You can hang with those guys. Yeah. I, I know where, so I like, I've always felt like I, I understood the game really well, but I just didn't have like the athleticism to keep up. So I could like be in the right place. If I'm open, I'm going to hit the shot. I can make a good pass. And then just like try hard on defense, I guess. But I'll probably get, you know, if there's a bigger guy, I'm I'm in trouble. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and so, where are you from? Are you from the New York area? Uh, I'm from Chicago. Oh no shit! Where like whereabouts? Like in the city or outside? Um, uh, north side, Wilmette is a northern suburb. Okay. okay. Are you familiar with the city at all? I am. Yeah. I mean, I I was raised in Milwaukee and then my, uh, my little sister, uh, you know, lives in Chicago and, um, I've been there a million times. She used to live on the North side near, uh, Wrigley field. Sure. Sure. Uh, my mom is in Evanston now, if that rings a bell at all. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, all those towns, you know, all those like, uh, you know, Chicago suburbs, but that was like born and raised for you. Like you never lived anywhere else. (laughs) No, that was it. I was born in the city and then I guess we, I'm not sure when they moved. They must've moved right after I was born to Wilmette and lived in the same house for, until I went to college. Okay. And so what was childhood like? I mean, like, was it like mine? Like pretty, like kind of like a nice, happy suburban boredom or is that a mischaracterization? Yeah, no, it was pretty idyllic. I, I, I don't I almost don't even know how else to describe it. It was it was pretty great. You have siblings? A sister. She's in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And then uh what about like are either of your folks um it sounds like in your in your book you mentioned that your dad has passed away. I don't know if that's accurate if if or if it's Yeah, uh... yeah. He passed away in two thousand eleven. Um and it, it keeps coming I keep writing about it. It's I, I never uh, set out to do that, but I guess it keeps coming up. It was, it was a little tragic. He had a heart attack and it was very sudden. Um, so yeah, I do have, are both of your parents still around? Yeah, no, I was just listening to you say that. And I was like, I, you know, knock on wood, I still have both my folks though. They're getting up in age and I'm, I'm like, I'll probably write an entire book when I lose my parent. (laughs) Like it's, you know, it's hard to even think about. Um, you know, so my condolences, that sucks. Uh, you know, and it doesn't sound like he was probably all that old, right? Was he in his sixties or fifties? No, he, he was, yeah, late fifties. Was he, was he in bad health or was it just kind of one of those like random? No, he, I mean, he, uh, he had the heart attack on a treadmill. He was keeping in shape. Um, I mean, he wasn't, he was a little overweight and there had been some, um, you know, cardiovascular disease kind of runs on that side of the family. So, but it wasn't in any way expected. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry. And, uh, what, where were you when that happened in terms of like the time in life? Um, I was, it was like the last week of my, uh, first year of my MFA program at the new school. Um, and so I was in Brooklyn and I remember I just let, I got the call late at night and then just left early the next morning and like didn't finish my finals. I remember, but they forgave me, which was very nice of them and let me pass. And then I took a year off 
and just stayed at home for that year and like kind of worked some odd jobs and just it's it, it seemed crazy to go back to an MFA program after that like like I'm gonna have like the, it seemed the furthest of relevance from like my my life to go to like try to fictionalize this or put it into words you know so I'm glad I did that but and and I'm it was kind of a fortunate time that I could like I could do that I could kind of take a year off and work odd jobs and help like help kind of pack up the house I guess yeah no I mean probably great to be there for your mom too right I mean she probably yeah loved, definitely loved having you around um, I, the reason I was asking about timing is I was wondering if the loss informed your choice to go into writing and to do this kind of work, but it sounds like you were already on that path. Yeah, definitely. So was writing something that came to you early? Was it something you landed on in college? Like, how did you get into to doing this? Um, I think it, it was always something I knew I wanted to do, but I didn't know how or what a writer looked like who was alive. Um, and so when I went to college, I thought that meant you had to become a journalist. So I thought I took, I, I was a journalism major up until the very last class. It was like my senior year when I discovered you could take creative writing classes. I didn't even know this existed, like that you could go and take a class in writing poetry or writing fiction so as soon as I found that out, I just, I, I scrapped the journalism major. It's like, I'm just going to do this and like loaded up the back half of my senior year with creative writing classes. And then the job market was terrible. It was 2009. So there was, you know, the, the financial collapse had just happened. And, um, I figured it was, a, you know, if I wanted to keep doing this and get some more experience, like go get an MFA uh, which I know, you know, it was what it was. Um, but then I also found like other writers out there. Like I discovered Tao Lin's work and like I met my friend David Fishkind, who's a, a writer friend and we communicate and like Jordan Castro and that some other people who were doing this outside of like an academic or or a sort of institutional way. And it, it felt very exciting and fresh and and um kind of gave like a roadmap of here's how you can be a writer in 2009 or something. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, did it have something to do with the inter I mean, I'm imagining the internet was a big factor. You must have been f discovering a lot of these people online. Yeah, totally. I was actually just um going through and like reading old tweets and stuff from from this time. Um and I like because I, I had discovered Twitter very early and was like, oh, what is this thing? And like this whole weird space for language and communication. Um, and so I you can almost it was funny to like see when I start to like connect with people and that like I could see then like now I'm attending events and like going to parties and hanging out with people and like meeting people who are publishing books and they're about my age and that's awesome and exciting. And like, why can't I do this too? And it, it found like I, I had found something I was like, I knew was out there, but I didn't know where it was. And then I found it. And once you found it, what your sense of possibility expanded. Yeah. It, it just seemed like, well, 
you can publish a book and and you don't need to be on the cover of like time magazine to do it you know what i mean you could be like there are small publishers and there are people writing poetry that is exciting and funny and um irreverent i guess that it's not as like staid as like you know uh, sort of like a like a, I, I'm picturing like some English professor with like a pipe or something. Sure. I know. I think like, I think that's one of the things I appreciate so much about your work is the fact that it, it is funny, but it's the right kind of funny because it's really weighted. Uh, I feel like there's a real griefiness, uh, not in a one for one way necessarily. It's not like you're grieving the loss of your dad or grieving the loss of, of somebody um, necessarily, but it just feels like that kind of dark, heavy world weary um like wry observational humor that i love and I, that i often hunger for when i'm reading anything i'm like just please can we throw in some laughs here you know we we all get it though you know life is hard <laughs> right right yeah <laughs> um so do you have any kind of like artistic like uh genealogy do, do you know do either of your parents you know do they uh do anything in the literary arts or in the arts at all or are uh, you are you the family no. anomaly yeah i'm the anomaly they i mean they were always very supportive um but i can't say they always got it you know yeah my dad i was talking to him about i have a book that's out on submission right now and He's like, well, I'd love to read it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like, let's see if, if it gets published. And once it's a book, I'll give it to you. And he's like, yeah, it's going to be, a, you know, what's your, you know, I've kind of described it to him. And he's like, it's a real human interest story. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if like that's how I would characterize it. I feel like I'm kind of weird. I don't know if they're going to, I guess I worry that like when my folks actually do read it, if they're going to be like, what the hell have we created? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've certainly felt that at times, like, you know, I would publish something early on and send it to my parents and they'd be like, uh, okay, okay. I'm, I'm not sure I get it, but congratulations. <laughs> um, do you have to, does your family want to make a lot of the fact that you're a writer though? Do you, I, I don't know if, you have much of, you know, like an extend, extended family that you see often, but do they like treat you as the writer at, in gatherings? Uh, nah, I mean, kind of. I think like if I published more, probably it would be more intense, but it's been a while since I've published a book. And um, I mean, I think somewhat, but not to the level of where it's a bother. Um, yeah, sure. I think my immediate family, that's probably more the case. I mean, it's what I am. And, uh, I've always been kind of involved in it one way or another, whether it's like the actual writing and publishing, or if it's a editing or doing this show or whatever, you know, it's always, I've always had mm -hmm. a, a hand in it somehow. So, you know, I don't know. It's like, uh, I'm always curious about how people come to it. Um, you know, you hear it happen all sorts of different ways. There are people for whom it's kind of like the family business. There are people who, have a parent who was like a frustrated artist and they seem to be like, you know, the realization of that dream somehow, you know, they're sort of picking up where their parent had to leave off for whatever reason. Uh, and then there are people like me who I feel like just, you know, came out a little bit different than the usual family, uh, you know, line. 
Yeah. Um, I think something like that I think about with my dad a lot and which maybe is why I end up right. I don't know if it's why I write him into stuff, but like he, so he was a lawyer, um, kind of because his dad wanted him to be, he real his real love was engineering and he, he had, uh, a degree in engineering and he loved to tinker and he loved to make stuff, but he became a lawyer because that's what his, again, what his dad said he should do. And so he was always unhappy in his career and would come home and on the weekends he would build stuff and had a workshop in the basement and he'd always fantasized about like retiring and then he gets to work on like, you know, building a car from scratch or whatever. And he never got to do that. And that always has felt like a cautionary tale to me, which is like, don't, do that like do whatever do what you want and if you end up getting stuck in something just because someone else you want your someone else or your parents want you to do it that's like a terrible place to be in yeah no that's like something i think a lot about and it's like trying to navigate the tension between the necessity of making a living and the desire to sort of uh, live in synchronicity with your like uh, your values and like highest aspirations do you know what i'm saying i think your book actually yeah of course your your book actually speaks to this Mm -hmm. a little bit i mean i think money is a theme um oh totally and you work a day job it sounds like you work in advertising am i wrong or i don't know what you're doing um yeah marketing but i'm i'm not in advertising so this i this book was written when I worked in a health insurance company. Um, I worked in a series of them and I guess that, that was certainly, you know, I was like doing this off the side of my desk because it was so boring and, uh, it's, it was a definitely a tension. It was like, well, they're paying me to do this and I can like live in New York city and, you know, have, these like material comforts, but like, this is such a weird box to shove a person into. Um, fortunately I'm at a different job now that I like much better. I'll say that. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And I think like for people who write, especially for people who write poetry, that's always going to be a challenge. Like what what was it like? Uh, T.S. Eliot worked in a bank, you know, you hear there's all these great, uh, you know, the stories that you always hear about how people supported themselves. And sometimes I feel like mundane day jobs can be good for a writer. Like if you can find one that doesn't ask too much of you, that pays the bills and allows you to not be, you know, stressing about money every minute that can often create circumstances that are good for writing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the upside with this book I certainly had the time to do it like I so I worked would work nine to five a 40 hour per week schedule but I was only working like seven of those hours I would guess like it was so uh just there was so much bureaucracy and like such strict workflows that like I couldn't do my task until it was released by another person who had to make sure it was finished by another person so I would just be sitting and waiting for so long and I would, I would like just be fiddling around with these lines and like order, reordering them and collaging them and editing, editing them in certain different ways. But 
like so the the time and the the space and like getting paid for all that was nice but it really does a number on your self-esteem and your self-worth <laughs> um to to be subjected to that kind of like drudgery i guess yeah the cum- um, the cumulative effects like over time especially i feel like you just like starts to wear you down yeah and you're just not going anywhere you're like i'm so i'm just here like is this the next 10 years of my life or you know like fifty thousand dollars part two (laughs) like i don't think i could do that (laughs) (laughs) so i was going to ask you are you working on a sequel (laughs) um sometimes when i feel lazy i'm like what if i just did it again but I don't think I could do that. I I'm, I'm just sort of like writing whatever and not letting it be directed by any sort of form or theme right now. And we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm very hesitant to put, put labels on anything so early. We'll see. Okay. So I want to ask you about collaging and mm-hmm. I I've talked with writers who work in this mode on this show. Like I think of David Shields as an example. Sarah, yeah. Sarah Manguso is another one that comes to mind. And uh, Maggie Nelson has done it. Uh, I've talked to her and I feel like when it's done well, I, I find it really thrilling to read. And, you know, there are all these different arguments that people make about appropriation and, you know, what's, what's okay and what's not okay. I land squarely on the side of it doesn't matter. You know, like all that, yeah. all the attribution and appropriation, like all that stuff. It's like, Oh, come on. You know, it's a collage. It's just like, like visual collage art. Like we shouldn't get caught up in all this, um, copyright BS. If it's an artist working in good faith to create a collage. And, uh, the other thing I think about it, and this gets to my question is that it, when it's done well, especially I think collage, like literary collage can trick you into thinking it's really easy. Um, yeah. And when I've tried it myself, I have found that the exact opposite is true. It's really hard. And so I would like to hear you speak to like that part of it for you, you know, where you have these lines and you're trying to sequence them correctly are you just doing it by feel? Is it intuitive? And once you kind of feel it click into place, is that it? Or do you have some sort of system? Um, I would say, yes, it's intuitive. And that any time I've tried to put more of a system or even like with this book, I, I tried to diagram it at one point with like, like uh, there are like the certain themes that come up. I wanted to see like with what frequency and like, was I overdoing it at any point or was there like, enough balance but that it, then that just seems ridiculous to like put a formula behind it or like it, the the formula wasn't helping at all it was it was making me feel like i had to do something rather than like letting the the work dictate uh what should happen um and i think with collage in general i i just think it's you know i i'll try to write full poems or full paragraphs of prose or a short story, but then I end up just, again, like I like the one line that was exciting in the first place or the, or I write towards something and like, I realize everything else around it is bad, but this one part is good. So just do that. Um, so it's, it's almost, 
it's not it's almost like not a choice for me to collage it's like out of necessity it's like i i don't i i wish i could write a like a novel but i just it i i, I just end up cutting too much and then i like what i have cut out of it better you know what i mean i do yeah i'm, I'm curious too like when it comes to theme like what i've done in the past is i've batched or tagged the bits that I like, if I have a big, like Microsoft word document and I've got, you know, a hundred thousand words of collage material, like potential collage material. If I'm trying to think of how to approach it, what I've done in the past is I've gone through and sort of indexed it. So it's like, Oh, this is about money. This is about death. This is about, um, childhood. And I'll try to like tag mm -hmm. the quotes so that I, I know kind of what general, uh, thematic territory they're in and then use that as a way to sort of sequence things like have you ever done anything like that or are you like making thematic connections like more haphazardly or um you know because um never wait so is is there a tool in microsoft word to to do that to like add to categorize like parts beyond I, like that I, the I, outline feature Oh, you know what? I mean, I literally just do it like right after the last punctuation mark. I'll put in bold. Oh, like, oh, oh, I see. Like parenthetic, um, like parenthetically, you know, I'll just put in parentheses like death, taxes or whatever. You know. But but then you can't sort by like, like show me only the death ones. Well, you can do it with a search function or like the, <laughs> like the fine. Right, with the search, but not, not like an Excel thing where you like hide all the other fields or something no yeah i'm sure there's i mean oh, if, okay. if, if okay. i were like savvier technologically i'm sure i could find a software program that could help me do that but yeah it's just like i, I think no, I, I, I what i'm getting at is just like the challenge of having a bunch of material that you like but not knowing how the puzzle fits together yeah totally and um, I'm, i want i'm just always curious how people do it yeah, no, I guess, and I'm always curious of like if there's some other hidden parts of Microsoft Word that like will help me. <laughs> I'm always trying to find them, <laughs> but I, I'm not as explicitly. Well, I'm, I mean, kind of. So, like, I knew there were these medical codes throughout, and those are like the ICD. That's how they start is ICD, and then a number. So I knew. Um. I could search by that and make sure that there weren't like too many in a row or like that there also that there weren't huge gaps and people forgot about what they were or something. And then I had like those long lists of names that I knew couldn't occur too close together. So there was a balancing act, but I never really measured it. It was more like eyeballed it. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think too, you know, one of the things I notice, not just in reading your work, but in reading really good collage uh, literary work is that the thrill is in the juxtaposition a lot of the time. Um, like there's something unexpected about the correlations and the way the puzzle pieces fit together. And like, I can feel it not only as a reader, but I can also kind of sense it in like from a compositional perspective, like I can imagine you as the writer sitting there being like, Oh my God, like I didn't realize these two things sequentially fit together so well. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, totally. That's, that's really fun when that happens, but it's just a matter of, you know, grinding it out. You know, you have these pieces and you're sitting there mulling them over. And then one day you put them side by side and realize that's, 
that's the that that works yeah yeah it's it, it was certainly a lot of it's like a lot of copying and pasting for this book which again i think it it really was a direct product of like being chained to a desk for 40 hours a week and not being all that busy but having to be there and so it's it was just like endless trying things out and like let me see if i cut this section and move it over here or did i just ruin the whole thing um so a lot of like just grunt trial and error do you read aloud like when you're editing no no i i've never been able to I, i've never really tried though so maybe i but i haven't no uh and then what about i want to talk to you about the internet i i've often said um and I know we've touched on it already, but I think like from a publication standpoint and from a readership standpoint and a community standpoint, like I think you found your tribe, it sounds like, uh, as you said earlier, by reading online, uh, at least to some extent you found it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like your work and poetry in general, you know, of any literary form, I feel like poetry is best suited for the digital experience or better suited for the digital experience than say long form mm -hmm. nonfiction or uh, you know, or fiction. And uh, can you talk a bit about how it has gone for you in terms of finding readers online? Because, you know, that's how I discovered you. And I know from talking to friends of mine that there's excitement about the work that you're doing in, uh, at least in so far as like this, like sort of, uh, small, like literary nerd community is concerned. Um, do you sense that and like, how have you approached, like, have you approached publishing online in a specific or methodical way that you have found helpful? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I will say like, I'm absolutely defined by it. Like I, I, it's how I found my way into publishing and writing and, and a lot of the stuff I read. So it, it feels almost inextricable from like, I'm, I'm, it's always going to be a part of my mindset is like, how is this going to look on a screen for better or for worse? It's not, but it, it's not like a calculated attempt of like, Oh, this won't fit. Uh, like this is too long for something like my, my own attention span is a product of like being on Twitter early and looking at screens all day and doing this as part of my job. So like, I, I'm almost already thinking about like, well, if like when I, when I try to write these longer things I've mentioned and I get tired and bored of them, it's like, because of that reason, because I'm like trained to not like, I'm like, this is just too, too much. Who cares? Like, just say the, say what, say the part that matters and get rid of all the, the fluff, I guess. But I, I guess in terms of like finding readers, I mean, it's, it, it sounds weird to say, but I, I don't, I try not to think about it. I don't really cultivate my following if you could even I, I hate to even call it that like I'm just ha like I try and do stuff that I like and that I I and I like I feel like I like what other people like like I I want it to be fun and interesting and exciting and um, have literary merit because I also like reading 
stuff on the page and people who aren't alive. And so I, I just think it's a product of like my own, um, my own taste. And I just try to be true to that. And, and that way I'm never, I'm never doubting my self. Well, that's not true. I doubt myself all the time. I guess I'm, as long as it feels good to me, I'm, I'm good with it. And I don't need to worry about like the reaction or, or how this furthers anything. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, I think the first, like the first part about what you were saying with regard to the internet and thinking about how something will look on a screen and how your work is kind of inextricable from your digital experience. Like it, it's, it's relatable, not just because we're alive in these times, but also I think generationally, you know, you are uh, like, at, you know, of an age where this is what you came up in, right? I mean, you've been online most of your life and, yeah. and then also, you know, as a, as a college person or a college student and a young professional, like, how could you, like, how could you possibly not be writing in a way that speaks to like screen life uh, at this point in, in human existence? Right. And I guess it's just, I never think of it in those terms. Like, cause again, I, I love a good novel I can lose myself in. And I like to like, especially this week, once I'm done with work at, at around five or so, like I put my phone in another room and like, I'm just going to sit and read books and take notes on an actual piece of paper. If I have anything to write down because it's, it can be so distracting, but I just, um, I, I just want to be like respectful of, I guess when you, when you ask someone to read something you've written, I just want it to be like totally worth it, you know, and not just here's this thing, read it. Cause I did it, but here's this thing. Like I, I, I really like it. I, it makes me laugh and I've had this insight while writing it. And hopefully, you know, if you like it, you like, it. if you don't, you don't, it's fine, you know, but it made me happy to do it. I understand that sentiment. I'm just like not wanting to waste anybody's time. I feel like there's a courtesy in your work. Yes. Like, and, and like your kind of obsession with brevity or concision and, and uh, getting rid of the fluff, as you called it. You know, I think that's an outgrowth of like reading online and spending a lot of time on Twitter. Um, you know, it sort of cultivates a kind of uh, discernment in a person, you know, it's like, just give me the good stuff, get to the point and, I also think there's something nice about, you know, doing that for a reader and like really thinking about the end experience, you know, the, uh, for whoever it is that picks up your book, like, and wanting to show them a good time and like not waste their time at all or force them to indulge you while you like pour your heart out or whatever. Yeah. And I think part of the problem with reading I had earlier this year too was because I was I was choosing these books that were big and long and um you know philosophical and I would it would just felt like a chore every time I'd open it and be like oh god like here's more stuff that isn't isn't very helpful for me whereas now I'm like picking up these 
you know, shorter books, books of poetry, short fiction that I'm like ex- genuinely excited to read because it's going to be like a, an experience. Well, I mean, I, I don't only like stuff that's short. I like stuff that's long too, but like I'm feeling this like excitement to read right now. And I, I think that's like what I would li- love to, I think that's like the ultimate gift in these times that we can give as, as a writer. What did you read? I mean, you talked about this past week needing a distraction after work or whatever. What yeah. did what did Andrew Weatherhead read during election <laughs> election week twenty twenty? What what provided comfort for you during these troubled times? Um, so uh, I'm almost done with Ted Berrigan's collected or his complete poems. It's this huge thing I've been reading for years. It's all of his poems, but they're they're just they're conversational and they're short and they're funny. Um, that's been fun. And like, uh, Aram Soroyan's minimalist poems, which are just sometimes just like almost text art. He's uh, fun. He was one of my graduate school professors. Oh, what's he like? He's he good. Yeah. Was he's he cool. A, yeah. He's a mensch. He's a nice guy. Um, wow, and, that's awesome. And I, he, he had like great stories from like the sixties. Like he went and interviewed Jack Kerouac for the Paris review. I think when Kerouac was like nearing the end and was like, you know, raging alcoholic and you know, he had great anecdotes. Nice. Nice. Um, uh, John Ashbery's poetry has been very good for troubled times throughout my life. Um, so why revisiting some of, well, uh, he, I, I've almost felt like he almost writes like self-help poetry the way I see it. And because he takes this super long view of humanity and events, and he kind of has this very, um, soothing and charming tone. That's like, you know, everything could be going wrong, but it'll like the sun rises tomorrow and it'll be okay. And, um, but in these, in these sort of elliptical terms that they don't minimize the bad feelings, but they also provide a sense of hope that like part of the, the interest of being alive and living a life is like to ride the ups and downs. And so I, I always have found him just like such such of a, a sage writer and, and someone to return to almost like like scripture or something that's great it's like it's good to have those people right i mean like uh, uh, it's like nice to know you can reach for it when the shit hits the fan absolutely and and it was like the first thing i reached for this week um and you can kind of pick it up and start anywhere and you don't have to you know, there's not a lot of like start at the beginning and it doesn't make sense if you haven't, you know, you could just open to any book wherever it's going to have something good for you. So I want to do something that I, I sometimes do on this show, not often, but sometimes I just thought it might be, I don't know. It struck me when I was reading your book and I thought it might be conversation fodder. So I'll read a line uh, from 50,000. It's a uh, quote, being a writer means separating your unique ideas and feelings from those understood by everyone else. And that is one of the hardest and most painful things a person can do. And as I, I sat there thinking about, like, I guess what I'm thinking about is, 
you know, fitting that line into a work of collage and thinking about the ways in which there's, you know, there's, there's so much obvious overlap between really personal sentiment when it comes down to it. You know, this is one of the reasons why I think of the arguments about appropriation are so silly. It's like, who owns like a, a line or an idea? But I, I don't know. Like, can, can, you, can you tell me where that line comes from or do you have deeper thoughts about it? Um, I don't remember where that line comes from. I, that's funny. You, I know I, I had shared the manuscript with some people whose, you know, opinions I trust prior to publication. And that was a line that was flagged as like, I don't understand this at all. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And so not, so it makes me second guess my, I'm like, man, am I full of shit? I have no idea what I'm talking about. I know, but I like (laughs) it. I guess I can, I can like kind of remember what so in that like so if you just tell everything if you tell someone if you're a writer and you just write some if you write i'm trying to put this into words so like if you just tell people everything they already know that's that's like the most boring thing there is that's who cares like you're completely uh there's no point in putting that out in the world if everyone knows it already so what to be a writer you have to like arrive at a unique idea and know that it's a unique idea and that it contributes value to others. Like, cause you could also have your unique ideas, but they're just totally crazy and they have no relevance to anyone else. So it's like bridging this gap between these ideas you have and then what's going to work for other people. Like what will help them understand something, understand you or the world and so you, it, it's like this, I, it, it's kind of the whole problem of being a writer and, and how to do that. You know what I mean? And it's probably like the, it's, it's like the funnest problem to try to solve. And I think leads to like the most personal insights. Yeah. But it's also painful, <laughs> which the line yeah, alludes yeah. to, you know, like, I, I try to explain this sometimes and, you know, you don't want to get melodramatic about it. Like everybody's got their struggles. Um, but you know, writers know this, like when you actually sit down to try to sort yourself out on the page in whatever way you do that, um, it's it often feels just so excruciating and yet you keep doing it. <laughs> like there's something redeeming about the process, you know, but I guess I'm fascinated by that pain. You know, why is it so excruciating? Right. Um, I mean, I think there's like levels to the, to the pain. (laughs) And part of it is like uh, one, just the, the like immense self doubt and like self questioning and, uh, you know, beating yourself up for not being good enough for like this first draft is just so stupid and like you're an idiot. But <laughs> also the idea of like knowing that you're separate from other people and that uh, like walking that tightrope of like being your own person, but also like finding the common ground with others and, and sharing in something together, but maintaining autonomy um, it's not easy. 
So have you ever thought about writing a novel or a memoir or something longer form? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to. Um, and I, I mean, I've been trying to do that for like as long as I've been writing. Um, like I, I didn't set out to be a poet necessarily. It just kind of broke that way. And, and it has provided, I think it's a better fit for my, um, instincts, I guess, creatively, but I always grew up reading novels. I didn't come to poetry until, until college, like I said. So I have this dream of writing a novel and I have made attempts towards it, but I can't predict that. And I also, I'm, I sometimes wonder if that's like me forcing it too much. Like if me wanting to write a novel because I've always wanted to write a novel is some sort of like self-limiting thought. And like, if I just sort of relaxed it, would a novel come out or something that I could call? Like I, I almost called $50,000 a novel just cause why not? And so like, could I, could I open it up that way and, and do something different with the form of a novel? Um, instead of trying to write these paragraphs that, fit onto a page and look normal you know what i mean i do and that, that was that's kind of like tied to my next question is that if you did write prose um like a long form piece of fiction or something would you continue to work in a, a collage mode i i think i would have to would be my answer um I, i've tried to do like a sustained pieces of prose or fiction where you know there's full paragraphs and it's formatted traditionally and it's just it's not very good writing to be honest i i wish i could do that like it it seems i i feel like it's it's somewhere like just out of reach like i could almost touch it but i just can't write um something classically in a prose format so maybe it's collaged in terms of paragraphs or collaged in sentences or, or something. Um, I do like to use a lot of white space I've found working with this book. And then with others, it's just, it, again, I think it's like a very generous thing to do for a reader where it's like, this page is really short so you can, you can keep moving. Like it's, it's a nice feeling to flip through a book quickly and, and have fun with it. Yeah. Right. Like, it's like a nice, like, it's like, I feel like you're so customer service oriented, you know, like how is the person, <laughs> but honestly, like, it's not something that I think a lot of writers spend enough time on possibly myself included. It's like something I always try to, to remember is like, just who, how's the person at home going to be feeling? How's the person at home going to be experiencing this? Like if you're writing this um, novel or poem or whatever it is as an act of communication, you are expecting that someone's going to read it, you know, otherwise it, if it's just for yourself, then do whatever you want. But yeah, but, but it's also like, that's what I want. Like I want it to be fun and like, I would rather it be a fun thing to read in three months for myself than to like make sure I've got, I've like expunged myself of words. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like in terms of, um, like thinking about a, a literary career, like in as much as one might do that, I guess some people really do, but 
uh, do you have a plan? Like, are you somebody who sits down and like charts out like five year, 10 year plan and thinks about how many books you want to write in your life? And I want to publish four novels uh, and. Well, it's certainly like a lifelong thing and I'm, I plan my life around it in, in many ways. Um, like right now, I, and I, I actually wanted to ask you about this because you've talked to so many writers, but my wife and I are considering a move out of the city upstate where it would be cheaper to live and possibly raise a child and uh, be closer to her family who's up there. And it's like, well, then I could, could I, would there be less of a pressure to be like, work, you know, working a lot? Could I quit working sooner um, and just do this? And, and I guess my, I get my question is like, have you talked to, or like, do you see a difference in writers who, who live in big cities versus small towns? I've lived in New York for my whole adult life, so I've never lived in a small town as an adult, and I'm a little scared of it. Yeah, I go. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. Like, I'm constantly pondering this because I've lived in Los Angeles for most of my adult life. Right. And I spend, I've spent like 95 plus percent of my adult life in this city. <laughs> Like, yeah. it's crazy to think about. And I, I've i seen writers who seem really happy and sort of, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Not like carefree, but they sort of give off that vibe. And, and they live in New York. Uh, and I've met writers who live in much smaller, much more cost-friendly places who seem a lot more tense. So I don't know. You know, if sure. that if that correlation is necessarily always like super direct, but I think in general, you know, people often ask me, having talked to hundreds of writers over the years, like, what have you learned? You know, and I've, I've kind of had to boil it down into like an easy answer just so I can, you know, offer something satisfying to people. Yeah. And I always say like the, the three big things are like, you know, read a lot, write every day or close to it. And don't do it for money. Um, yeah. And that those three things are kind of like the big three takeaways that I've gotten from talking with writers who are successful at it. Um, now, you know, I just talked to Dean Koontz, who has sold 500 million copies of his books. Like, I'm pretty sure he thought about money when he was sitting yeah, down. Yeah, right. But he was also raised in, like, abject poverty in, like, rural Pennsylvania and, like, had an outhouse as a child and shit like that. And so... I don't, I, I'm not criticizing him for that. There's different ways to approach the business of literature, I guess. But I think for like literary fiction and poetry people, I just think if you go into this, like putting the pressure on yourself of like, this is how I'm going to win bread and support my family. You're asking for a lot of like psychological stress. Um, yeah. And I, I guess that's like, I, I, I'm never, I, I've resigned myself to never making money from it. Um, or it may be resigned is too negative a word, but that uh, I'm very happy that I've never had to do creative stuff with a financial mindset. Um, that seems like a, a, a trap or something. Like I, I'm almost scared of what would happen if someone were to approach me and be like, hey, here's a big advance for a novel. I would I would freak out 
because I, w- I couldn't say no. I'd be like, yeah, of course, I, I would love to make money with my art. But then I w- it would just so mess up my creative process. Yeah, I hear that. And I think, I think yeah, I've seen this happen with people that I've talked with on this show where they've gotten that, like they've had a big success or they've gotten a massive advance. And, uh, you know, then it's either the book didn't earn out its advance. So you feel like you've disappointed your publisher and everybody who worked on the book. And you've, you know, basically precluded yourself from ever getting a similar advance in the future. Or you have a book that didn't get necessarily like a massive advance, but that just sold like gangbusters and was this huge raving success. And then you go to publish the next thing or write the next thing and you feel, um, I think it can create a lot of pressure. Like, how am I going to, like, what's my next act? And, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's like, there's some wisdom in sort of keeping it personal and dividing your breadwinning life from your creative life. And I think tied to that, and I'll circle back to where we originally started with you contemplating this move upstate and my thinking about the urban versus like smaller town existence or moving someplace where I have more immediate access to open space and nature is the idea of just living a low overhead life and how that correlates with sanity and happiness. Um, I think there's got to be some truth to that. Like if you can keep your overhead low and just not need as much. You know, I, I feel like in a big city, you know, just to send our kids to school is, you know, I don't even want to think about the amount of money that's going to go into that eventually. And then, um, you know, real estate, uh, all of it. I mean, you know, I don't have to sit here and like itemize it, but I wonder sometimes it's like, wow, if we just lived in like a groovy little college town with a house that was, you know, $300,000 or something like wouldn't our lives be, wouldn't our lives be so much like, wouldn't we be lighter in terms of how we woke up every day? Um, I don't know, you know, cause I can also flip it and be like, Oh, but we lose this, this, and this, and we would have to start over trying to find friends and you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, that's exactly the calculations we're doing. Um, I think, and especially this pandemic has shown me that like, I, I could, I just need food. Like I'm good. I I don't really want for much, but the city has a way of extracting it from you. (laughs) Um, you know, it just even, I, I think back, like we had the last weekend before everything got locked down, we like went out to dinner and we went to a Knicks game and we went to a karaoke for a friend's birthday party. And it was like this massive expense. Like I, I, I could, that would be like a month of living upstate on just less, you know? Um, and it's like, what I miss, like that was all fun, but like I could just not have to worry about that. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, but, but I do, I would miss, you, you know, I think a lot of my, again, my, my whole adult life has been in New York city and I like the weird collisions of, dialogue and people that and scenes and little things that happen that that have like fueled my creative work and it would be a little scary to leave behind this place that is so exciting from that 
respect, but I also like don't go out much. Like I don't go to readings. I don't, I'm not super social. Like I love the friends that I have and I'm, I'm very happy when I see them, but I'm not someone who's like, you know, part of the literary scene so much here. Um, so I don't know. Wait, can I, I can I, I stop really you? Can I can I stop you there? Yeah, sure. You're speaking you're speaking something that's making sense to me. It has resonance, and it's like I'll sit here and I'll go, God, I'll, you know, Los Angeles. It's like it's such a strange soup. Like I really do have affection for it, and I often fear that I love it more than I even realize because I, I'm always here. So it's like I don't really even you know I don't have a good sense of difference because the, I'm, not, I'm not really comparing it to anything in an immediate way, and I'm. I'm like, wow, if we moved like to some really cheap place in, you know, Oregon or Colorado or the Midwest or something, like, would I just be like, what have I done? You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't even realize how good I had it. <laughs> and, uh, and then at the same time, I'll be like, but I pretty much just stay in my garage the whole time. What's the difference between me being in the garage here and me being in the garage in some college town? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Um, and I mean, I'm, I, well, I, I'm optimistic about my ability to like find, uh, some sort of inspiration wherever I am, I think, but I guess like there's something about the grit and the juxtaposition of the city and like the, just, you, you know, like there, there'll just be like a door left open in a building and you could like peer in and see some weird thing you've like never realized was like inside this building that's very like that kind of sense of uh so much so much like packed in together is exciting to me that when i go upstate um it just seems like everything is what it is like there's there's no tension there or something yeah no i mean i'm recalling like when i first moved to los angeles I had been living in Colorado for a long time in Boulder, which was even sleepier back then. I mean, this was 20 years ago, so a lot has changed in Boulder. Boulder's now like become this sort of like mini Silicon Valley or something. But, you know, when I was there, it was really just a college town, groovy, like mountain town. And uh, the pace of life, you know, it's a 300,000 person town. So it's not tiny, but it's not a big city. And it's in this beautiful location and the pace of life is slow. And I distinctly remember when I moved to Los Angeles, like feeling the, the speed, like feeling like how much more frenetic and intense life was and just being like, holy shit, like, am I going to be able to do this? And a month later it was normal, (laughs) Um, which I think is instructive if you were to put it in reverse, like maybe you would move upstate and for that first month you would be like, oh my God, like this is painfully, you know, slow moving and everything just is what it is. But maybe like a month or six months or a year in, you would be like, how did I ever live in the city? Like, this is great. Like I can, yeah, I can breathe. Well, it's, yeah, I had a similar experience moving to New York from this idyllic childhood in suburban Chicago where I was, I was a fish out of water for maybe 18 months. And I was like, I don't get it here. This is weird. Why is everyone so angry? Uh, (laughs) And, and almost, I think so much of my attachment to the city now is because I 
like overcame how much I disliked it <laughs> or like, or maybe it's some weird Stockholm syndrome thing where it has me like sucked in and, and reluctant to leave it when it like, I could move upstate and be like, man, that was awful. Why did I, why did I live there for so long? Right. But uh, you, but you don't know until you do it. And it, yeah, exactly. It, and it's possible that you could do it and be like, Oh, we've made a terrible mistake. And then you've got to go through the hassle of trying to move back. <laughs> Right, which is possible. Like, and and the other thing too is that if you you know it depends where you move upstate, but you can always take a train into the city. That's sort of the beauty of upstate. Right, and it's a great train ride. It's very very beautiful. Yeah, so maybe that's the answer. And and I'll tell you too, you know, it's different for everybody. But having kids upstate, logistically at least, is probably going to be a hell of a lot easier than having kids in New York. I mean, people do it everywhere, yeah. but just. If you have a kid, maybe it'll matter even less to you where you are. You're sort of going to be, especially those, you know, for the first year or two, you're just going to be inside anyway or at work or whatever. Yeah, right. And and having um, extended family nearby would be a huge bonus huge. in that regard. Don't, yeah, don't underestimate that. Don't underestimate that. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, well, listen, man, it's been great to meet you. I also want to say that uh, Weatherhead is an awesome last name for a poet and for a writer in general. I just feel like you scored on your last name. <laughs> Thank you. I, I take it for granted, I think, or I, or I should give myself more credit for it. But it's it's like that's the name a lot of my friends call me. They'll just call me Weatherhead. So I, I it's like I don't even hear it anymore, but... But sometimes I stop and realize it's it's not a bad last name. No, it's good. It's perfect. It's like it's like po it's like it's its own poetry. Like right, I, that's what I feel like. It, it evokes you know obvious images. But um, it, you know, and and a fan of your work, I hope you do just for my own sake. I hope you do at some point write a novel. I'd be curious to see what it looks like and and what you do with it. And uh, I don't know. I just I, I encourage you because I feel like you're doing good work and you're kind of on your way um, in, in, your, in your literary project towards really good things. So kudos. and cool. uh, thank and, you. Yeah, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for um, asking me to do this. This was fun. I'm, I'm glad I, we got a chance to meet. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Andrew Weatherhead. His new book is called $50,000. It's available from Publishing Genius Press. You can find him on the Internet at andrewweatherhead.org you can follow him on twitter his handle there is at weatherhead but it's with two e's so it's like at weatherhead w-e-e you know what i mean the book again is called fifty thousand dollars go get your copy immediately The Other People Podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is made available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program and you listen regularly and you get something from it and you have the means, tip your server. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, my email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Send me a photo of where you are when you listen. Where are you in space? It's a thing we do on social media, hashtag where I listen. Where are you right now in space as you listen? 
The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. It's free. It's a good app. It's a great way to listen. If you would like to get some gear, if you want a T-shirt or a sweatshirt as the uh, winter approaches here in the Northern Hemisphere, you can do that by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the T-shirt in the left sidebar. It will take you where you need to go to purchase some Other People Podcast apparel. It's good stuff. The t-shirts are really soft, if that matters to you. It matters to me. I like a soft t-shirt. It's not scratchy. You know what I mean. They're good t-shirts. I've got Casey Thornton coming up next week on the program. I had a a wonderful conversation with her. Very gifted young debut author. So stay tuned for that. More good ones in the pipeline. Hope you guys are okay out there. Stay sane. (laughs) 